How does a peace treaty from 1648 explain Star Trek's prime directive? What would Captain Picard say about the war in Syria? Was Marvel's Civil War just a conflict between liberals and neoconservatives? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Imagine this science fiction story. An advanced starship, piloted by a team of noble heroes, stumbles upon two civilizations in conflict with one another. After investigating, it's discovered that one civilization is oppressing and exploiting the other. One civilization, thinking they have some horrible disease but are in fact horribly addicted to a drug that the other civilization is giving them to cure the disease, is being exploited by the providers of this drug. They have been driven to poverty and suffering as they try to pay for this drug, and it is clear that this suffering will go on probably for decades or centuries. Faced with this dilemma, the captain of this advanced starship of noble heroes chooses to fly away, leaving these two civilizations to their respective fates. This doesn't sound like the stuff of heroic sci-fi action, but it is the plot of the season one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Symbiosis. And it is a perfect encapsulation of the international relations concept known as state sovereignty. Now, state sovereignty is an idea that begins to develop in Europe around the 17th century and somewhat becomes cemented in the treaty known as the Peace of Westphalia, signed between several European powers in 1648. Now, this treaty which ended the Thirty Years' War, was intended to restore peace to Europe and end the ongoing devastation and slaughter of the religious wars of decades and centuries past. You see, Europe at this time, following the Protestant Reformation, the breaking away of people from the Catholic Church in the fear among Catholic rulers of certain European countries, that the diminishing power of the Catholic Church, the conversion of people to Protestantism would undermine their power, led to a series of religious wars culminating in the Thirty Years' War. And so, in the Peace of Westphalia, the European powers agree to a new standard of behavior. The standard we now know as state sovereignty. The idea being that states, that's not states as in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, states in the international relations context, um, territories with governments. In this sense, Germany, France, the United States, these are states. State sovereignty, the idea that these states are sovereign, have power within their borders, and no one else, no other state, has a right to interfere with what is happening within their borders. Now again, this idea makes sense in the context of the time. You had states going to war with each other, millions of people dying, something like 20% of the population of Germans at the time killed um, over the course of these these conflicts. 
And state sovereignty is intended to end that kind of conflict. All the states of Europe agreeing, we're not going to interfere with, any, with each other's business. We may go to war with each other over territory, resources, other things, but we can at least agree, you get to be Catholic, we get to be Protestant, we won't tell you what to do, you won't tell us what to do. What you do within your borders is your business. We're not going to invade you to tell you you all have to be Catholic or Protestant now no matter how much we think it might be for the best of your people to convert to our religion. So this is the idea of state sovereignty. And it arguably is the basis for Star Trek's prime directive. The principle and the guiding Starfleet law that Captain Picard in symbiosis is drawing from and using to support his decision to fly away. The idea that we... That is, Starfleet, the Federation, we do not interfere in the development of other civilizations. And so, this idea, which is the basis of Starfleet's prime directive, which develops, begins to develop in the 17th century, cemented in 1648, would come to guide European behavior, uh, the behavior of European states towards one another, for centuries to come. Of course, to be clear, this is a principle that was concluded among European powers. It was concluded among people of similar historical circumstances and comparable technological development. Now, while these European powers believed in state sovereignty with regard to each other, who they perceived as technological equals, when these European civilizations began encountering less technologically developed peoples in South America, in Africa, in Asia, this principle went right out the window. When these civilizations who had agreed were not going to interfere in the development of one another started to encounter peoples in Africa, in South America, peoples who did not have the technology, the means to defend themselves from interference, uh, suddenly it was a different story. This is the age of colonialism. European states invading foreign territory, claiming land, imposing their standards, their beliefs, their cultures on the natives of those places. Now, sometimes this was justified on purely pragmatic, practical grounds, i.e., we need to take this territory in Africa to grow our own wealth, to grow our own power. If we don't do it, the French will or the Spanish will, and then they'll, they will outpace us, and then we're in trouble. Sometimes it was justified on moral grounds albeit very flawed moral grounds, giving rise to the, the, the concept known as white man's burden. The idea that these European states, we are, we are so much more advanced, so much more developed. It's our burden, it's our duty to go to the rest of the world and educate them and civilize them. As a side note, this, uh, this term white man's burden comes from a poem by Rudyard Kipling in which he urges the United States to start engaging in the imperialism game despite the costs that it might carry for the United States because they have a duty to civilize the people of the Philippines and other such places. Further side note, this so offended Mark Twain that he wrote his own counterpoem, basically telling Kipling and people thinking like him that they're morons. But anyway, this colonialism, this violation of the concept of state sovereignty led to countless atrocities, human rights abuses. And if you study colonialism at all, you know, despite the sometimes good intentions of some colonizers, 
colonialism almost always ended in oppression and violence towards those being colonized. And further, this colonialism didn't only carry consequences at the time. We now, looking back, can see how colonialism and violations of the independence of various civilizations led to other consequences, other death and destruction down the line. It's commonly accepted now, I, I would think, that the Rwandan genocide, the roots of that, that tragedy, can be found to some degree in European colonialism, where you have European powers coming into a territory, drawing lines on a map, slamming different cultures, different peoples together, favoring one group over the other. In the case of Rwanda, you have the Europeans favoring the, the uh, Tutsi over the Hutu and only engendering resentment, anger, hatred that once the Europeans were gone would explode into genocide and violence down the road. The, the map of the Middle East is another excellent example of this where you have places like Iraq, uh, countries that were just kind of drawn on a map by European colonizers. Lines drawn without regard to the fact that you have a mix of different peoples, in the case of Iraq, Shias and Sunnis, living together. Groups that don't always get along, groups that don't always trust each other. And now you have countries where these groups are forced to coexist in some way that they didn't design themselves, leading to conflict, something we've seen since the United States invaded Iraq. And so... All of this, over time, has given more ammo to the idea that state sovereignty matters. In all cases, again, state sovereignty, the idea that it can prevent wars. If we agree that we won't interfere with each other's business, we can avoid war. We can avoid conflict with one another. The idea that no matter what our intentions may be, it is not the right of any civilization to interfere with the development of another civilization. No matter how much we may want to help, no matter how much we may think we are helping another civilization, we have no right to interfere in the affairs of another civilization as they develop on their own, i.e. the right to self-determination. Every people has a right to determine for themselves how they will live, how they will govern themselves, what civilization they will uh, live under. And finally, apart from the purely moral argument, history has given us the argument that we should fear unintended consequences. Again, no matter how well-meaning our intentions are, no matter how much good we think we can do, sometimes well-intentioned interventions will, years down the road, lead to consequences we couldn't dream of. The Rwandan genocide, something that European colonizers likely would not have foreseen at the time, but something that grows out of European colonialism. And all of this contributes to the modern notion of state sovereignty, the moral principle that within international relations, states should stay out of each other's business. And again, this is the principle that really informs the prime directive which Captain Picard supports so vehemently. By the way, another side note, I'm going to use a lot of Picard examples and talk about Picard because Next Generation is my favorite Star Trek. Picard is my favorite captain. Uh, that's what I know. Kirk and Janeway fans come at me. Picard is the best. Anyway, this, pr this principle of state sovereignty, it can help us understand the idea of the prime directive. And Picard is clearly thinking of all of this 
Earth history, all of these principles, when he talks about, when he defends the prime directive, um, when, he, when he applies it in action, the idea that state sovereignty can prevent horrible wars that might otherwise have been prevented. Picard echoes this in his dealings with the Cardassians, the Romulans. Picard, always concerned about not violating the neutral zone, no matter what provocations from the Romulans, emphasizing the idea we have to stay out of it. We can't interfere with a territory that is outside our jurisdiction. We don't want to provoke some kind of war that can be avoided. In the season four episode of The Next Generation, The Wounded, Picard stops a rogue Starfleet captain from interfering with Cardassian ships that are suspected of carrying out secret military operations that could be a threat to Starfleet. Even knowing that these Cardassian ships are likely violating galactic treaties between the Federation and their Cardassians, even knowing that this could potentially be dangerous, he refrains from interfering against regulation in the affairs of other civilizations out of fear that his interference could provoke a larger war with the Cardassians, which he doesn't want. The idea that we have no moral authority and that we will, despite our best intentions, provoke unforeseen consequences is seen in that episode I referenced in the intro, Symbiosis. Picard, seeing that a civilization is suffering, seeing that one civilization is being exploited by another, knowing that as a commander of a powerful starship, he has the means to put an end to this suffering, still leaves, knowing that this suffering could likely continue, arguing that he as one individual has no right to decide how these civilizations should interact with each other, and knowing that his intervention, however effective it might be in the moment, however much he may, for the sake of people suffering, want to help, knows that the consequences could be dire. In his typical Picard speech at the end of the episode, he echoes the history we've just talked about, saying, quote, history has proven again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. Picard, arguing we can't help these people. What we will bring on them is likely so much worse. We may not know how it will be worse. We may not know what damage we will do, but we know that we will do damage in the future. This is... Picard's prime directive. Now, of course, the question arises, how can you justify not helping people that are suffering? Even knowing all this history, knowing the, what the consequences may be, if you're seeing someone suffering in the moment, how can you not help them? And this, I would argue, is the philosophy of the Marvel Universe, especially the philosophy of Spider-Man. And Spider-Man's great phrase, what I like to call the Spider-Man Doctrine, with great power comes great responsibility. In other words, if we have the power to intervene to help people, we have a duty, a moral responsibility to do so. Now, of course, Spider-Man learns this the hard way in the classic origin story. Peter Parker gets his spider powers Rather than using them to do good, he uses them to compete in wrestling matches, gain money and fame 
for himself. I suppose not fame. He was doing it anonymously, but fame for his character. And chooses not to, to help others. Chooses not to intervene to stop a mugger as he's running past him. Of course, later, that mugger encounters his Uncle Ben and murders him. And this becomes the basis of Spider-Man's philosophy. This becomes the key point in Peter Parker's character arc. The realization that failing to intervene, failing to stop violence, stop abuses, can lead to horrible, even more horrible consequences down the road. If you have the power to help others, you have a duty to do so. Now, this echoes a concept that has developed within international relations largely in the 20th century, and especially since World War II and the revelations of what happened during the Holocaust, the, the idea of responsibility to protect, or R2P. The idea that states have a responsibility to protect their people, and if a state fails to protect their people, or a state does harm to their people, they sacrifice their sovereignty, and it is now the responsibility of other states through some international community to intervene to help. And just like Peter Parker learns this lesson after being confronted with tragedy, the international community has sort of come to this concept of responsibility to protect after its own tragedies. Again, the Holocaust shows just how horrible things can go if other states fail to intervene to stop abuses that are happening within a state. In the 90s, we witnessed ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, in Kosovo. The Rwandan genocide, sometimes cited as a case of why we shouldn't intervene, the colonialism leading to conflict, also cited as an example of why we must intervene. The international community fails to intervene to prevent what is clearly becoming genocide in Rwanda, and we end up with countless dead. Something that President Bill Clinton would later say was the what he considered the great tragedy, the great mistake of his presidency, his failure to lead some kind of intervention in Rwanda. And so these things show us the counter-argument, the danger of non-intervention. Spider-Man fails to stop a mugger, someone he cares about dies. We fail to stop growing oppression and abuse towards Tutsis in Rwanda, and thousands die. And so, these two competing views of what is moral in international relations are something we are still contending with today. What should we do in Yemen? What should we do in Syria? What should we do with regard to growing Chinese oppression in Hong Kong? Uh, do we have a moral responsibility to intervene in some way in these places? Or is the lesser evil to stay out of these things, to let other civilizations, other cultures work them out for themselves? Because perhaps we have no right to intervene. Uh, perhaps we're worried that the consequences of our intervention will be far worse. Now, if you are on the responsibility to protect side, if you are on the side of we must intervene, those with the power to help must help, the question still arises, how should we help? 
and who should help. And this is a debate that we can see arise in the Marvel Civil War. We can talk about the comic book version of Marvel Civil War or Captain America Civil War, the movie. I'm going to talk about that because I know more about that. In Captain America Civil War, we see the Avengers going into a foreign country, tracking down an arms dealer who's uh, suspected of having some kind of horrible weapon and attempting to capture him. Of course, a good, noble mission, an intervention in a foreign state um, to prevent some future tragedy. Over the course of this intervention, as the Avengers fight through the streets heroically, punching people and throwing shields and hammers and so on, innocent people are killed. A bad guy detonates a bomb. The explosion is contained and sent elsewhere by Scarlet Witch. I think that's how it goes. And that redirected explosion ends up hitting a building, killing innocent people. Which raises the question, who gets to decide when and where the Avengers intervene? How can we prevent this sort of tragedy again? And two camps develop within the Avengers. One camp led by Captain America arguing, despite these accidents that have happened, despite the risks involved, the Avengers still need to be the ones deciding when and where they intervene. The safest hands are still our own, Steve Rogers argues. On the other hand, you have... Tony Stark, Iron Man, arguing that they need some kind of oversight. Some international body needs to oversee the Avengers and tell them when and where they can intervene and stop them if they intervene without permission. The idea being, we can't be trusted anymore. The people intervening can't make these decisions for themselves. Some international body, some collective has to decide when and where interventions occur to give these interventions some kind of moral basis, the idea that if the international community agrees, then it is somehow more moral, and further, that this oversight will hopefully prevent further tragedies. Now, what always bothered me in Captain America's Civil War, there was no one, there was no Picard character there. There was no one arguing for the state sovereignty point of view. You have people arguing about what is the right way to intervene, but no one's sitting there asking, do we have a right to intervene at all? And I realize this would not make for a a good movie. This is an action movie, not, you know, a harder sci-fi thinking movie where we discuss philosophy. This is a movie that is just a means for setting up guys in capes punching each other. But still, I always kind of wished... Hawkeye would walk into the room and say, you know, Tony, Steve, maybe we should just stay the hell out of this. Maybe we're just going to screw things up no matter what we do. But anyway, no one argues that. What we get is a debate about when and where and how intervention should occur. So two camps developing, both arguing that, yes, the Avengers should intervene to fight bad guys, prevent tragedies. It's just a matter of who gets to make that decision. Now, The Tony Stark camp, the Iron Man camp, reflects more of an internationalist point of view. The idea that intervention should take place through the international community. Now, this camp in the real world really gains more strength post-U.S. invasion of Iraq, where we see the United States, without the backing of the United Nations, invading Iraq, and things don't really go as well 
as U.S. policymakers thought they would. We see an ongoing insurgency, terrorism, um, an ongoing humanitarian crisis. And since then, we've seen more of a call to limit interventions to those the international community signs off on through the United Nations. This is what Tony Stark is calling for. And this is what Barack Obama largely ran on. So Tony Stark echoing kind of the Barack Obama logic of we can't trust those with the power to simply use it for humanitarian reasons the best way possible. We need to put this power under the control of some international body that will decide when to intervene. I realize I just made Tony Stark much cooler for some of you, and some of you probably hate him now, based on his association now with Barack Obama. But either way, this is the Tony Stark argument. We screwed up in Sokovia because we didn't have oversight. We screwed up in Iraq because there was an oversight. Now, Steve Rogers, echoing more of the George W. Bush position. And that is the neoconservative position. Now, neoconservatism, a distinctly American political philosophy that really arises in the post-Cold War world, a, a philosophy that says the United States, you know, being the sole superpower, has a duty to intervene in other parts of the world, and that this intervention would be for America's own good. If we intervene in authoritarian states and bump them off, we can spread democracy, make a more democratic world, a more peaceful world, a safer world for the United States. And neoconservatism further arguing that while we want to intervene in the rest of the world, we, while we want to help the rest of the world, we really shouldn't put any faith or trust in international institutions. Why should we trust a United Nations to make the right decisions when the United Nations is an organization that puts states like Gaddafi's Libya on the Human Rights Council? Why should we trust a United Nations where authoritarian, oppressive states like Russia and China have permanent seats on the Security Council? Why should we trust an international community to do the right thing? The United States has the power and it has the moral authority to intervene. Why should we wait for a broken, corrupt organization to give us permission. And this is really the Steve Rogers logic. Steve Rogers, Captain America, having in the last movie discovered that the various governments of the world and the international organizations have been infiltrated by Hydra. All these international organizations, all these governments, secretly being controlled by an evil Nazi terrorist organization. The Steve Rogers argument is, why are we going to put these organizations in charge of deciding when and where we intervene to help others? And so this is the debate that develops in civil war. So, these three views of morality in international relations, state sovereignty, a responsibility to protect through international coalitions, a responsibility to intervene through unilateral humanitarian interventions, all perspectives that we are still debating today, and all perspectives that are echoed in our sci-fi and fantasy fiction. And all perspectives that we can apply to these current debates we're having. What do we do about Syria? What would Picard say about the possibility of the United States interfering to help the people of Syria suffering through a horrible civil war? We know what Spider-Man would say. We have to help. We have the power to help. We have a responsibility to help. 
And the question is just, how do we do so? Should the United States intervene unilaterally? Should we wait for some kind of UN approval? Captain America would probably be right now championing the idea of a unilateral United States intervention. We can intervene, we can restore peace, we can remove Bashar al-Assad from power, and we can start to heal the country of Syria. Iron Man, and Spider-Man for that matter, he allies with Iron Man in the movie, they'd be probably arguing for a little more measured restraint. They'd be saying, yes, we do have to intervene, but not without a coalition. We need to get the Europeans, we need to get the Arab states involved in this. We cannot do this on our own because we don't have the moral authority to act without some kind of international approval, and we can't hope to make the right decisions without input from all these states. I suspect Picard would be advising much more restraint. He would point out that Syria is at least partly a mess because of European intervention to begin with. It was French colonialism that helped create the modern Syrian state and that helped lead to the rise of this horrible authoritarian dictator. Now, that's not to say that Picard would say we should do nothing. When people are fleeing Syria and asking for asylum, Picard would say we should absolutely give it to them. Picard always offers aid and comfort to people fleeing from horrible conditions. He always advocates for helping the, the refugee in his command. He might also say some intervention may be necessary to prevent other intervention by different foreign powers. Picard might say, look, we can't solve the, the problems of Syria, but we can keep the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Saudis out of it. We might not have the right to intervene, but these other states don't have a right to intervene either, and we can at the very least use our power to perhaps keep them out of it and keep this a Syrian matter. And, and I think there's a, there's a basis for arguing Picard would do that. In a later season of The Next Generation, we see the Klingons descend into a civil war, and Picard arguing according to the prime directive starfleet cannot intervene in the civil war to help either side even though we would love to see one particular side win because we're afraid the other side will ally with our enemies picard arguing no despite the danger of a bad outcome we can intervene in the civil war but when it's discovered the romulans are secretly arming and supplying one side of this conflict picard doesn't have a problem with deploying a blockade preventing the romulans from further interference in the conflict. And so this is kind of the semi-loophole around state sovereignty. We can't interfere to fix a problem, but we can at least keep others from making it worse. And I think that's what Picard would say about a lot of the conflicts we're confronted with today. We can't fix it. We have no right to fix it. We'll probably just make it worse, but we can at least keep others out of the problem. And so I think those are the three perspectives. Non-intervention, at least within the conflict, intervention through international means, intervention through unilateral action. So what are you? Are you a Picard prime directive person? Are you a Spider-Man, Iron Man, we need to intervene, but with permission? Are you a Captain America, gung-ho, let's go fix the problem because we're the only ones that can fix it? Love to hear your perspectives on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you. Hi there. One addendum to this episode, um, I started talking to my girlfriend after I recorded this and talking about um, 
you know, different perspectives and, you know, with regard to state sovereignty, you know, is anyone truly committed to state sovereignty all the time, you know, even in the face of something like the Holocaust? And I think a lot of people who would say they're non-interventionists, they believe in the prime directive idea of non-intervening, will have that point where they say some atrocity, some human rights abuse is so extreme, it crosses a line whereby that principle goes out the window and we have to intervene. And something like the Holocaust would be an example of that. And it occurred to me, I I think Picard might feel the same way. I was reminded of an episode, and I'm recording this on the fly, so I didn't have time to go back and look it up. But I believe the episode is titled Pen Pals. And it's an episode where Data starts talking to a little girl on on a radio, and it turns out that she's... um, part of a civilization that hasn't developed space travel yet and therefore is a perfect example of a technologically less developed civilization that the Starfleet is supposed to stay away from and allowed to develop naturally. Um, but it's discovered that the civilization is about to be wiped out by a super volcano and the entire civilization will go extinct. And while the Prime Directive says, no, you have to let this civilization develop and live or die on its own, we can't intervene, Um, I I believe ultimately Picard and the crew conclude, well, in the face of extinction, we have to intervene because this isn't about allowing a civilization to develop on its own and work out its own problems. This is about a civilization is going to completely cease to exist if we don't intervene. And so Starfleet um, manages to fix the problem somehow without revealing um, their presence. And so they don't um, you know, let the civilization know that there are aliens out there and space travel and so on, but still save the civilization. So you could argue even Picard, the ultimate, you know, paragon of the prime directive would say, no, there are some things where even, even I can justify intervening. If there's going to be some horrible tragedy, um, that crosses some line where an entire people is going to be exterminated. And further, I think, you know, Picard would say that this call was different because it was a civilization about to be wiped out by a natural disaster, not two civilizations warring against each other, where maybe you can argue we have to just let them work it out. Um, But still, an interesting case where Picard violates the prime directive on the basis of saying something is so extreme, the consequences are so severe, we have to find a way to help. So something else worth thinking about. You can be a state interventionist and still draw your line somewhere. Just wanted to add that addendum. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more nerdy science fiction talk, please subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, and email me at Social Science Fiction Show at gmail.com. Thank you.